Thanks for listening to our podcast. We've got more information and additional resources at probe.org slash podcast. And be sure to check out our life-changing Summer Mind Games Camp for high school and college students. Do the mystery religions of the 1st and 2nd centuries have anything to do with Christianity? Don Clausen debunks that myth now on Probe. The Internet is full of places arguing that Christianity's core ideas were copied from Greek religion and philosophy. There's an entire website titled The Pagan Origins of the Christ Myth, as well as the infamous conspiracy movie found at zeitgeistthemovie.com. It's also not unusual for college students to hear professors teach that Christianity is nothing more than a strange combination of the Hebrew cult of Yahweh and ideas adopted from Greek thought. This criticism of traditional Christianity is not new. In fact, its heyday was between the late 1800s and the 1940s and coincided with what is now called the History of Religions movement. This group of theologians and historians accused Paul of adding Greek ideas to his Hebrew upbringing and in the process creating a new religion, one that neither Jesus nor his first disciples would recognize. Was the origin of Christianity dependent on existing Greek philosophical and religious ideas? That depends on what you mean by the word dependent. In his book, The Gospel and the Greeks, philosopher Ron Nash argues that dependency can be weak or strong, and that the difference is an important one. A strong dependency would mean that the idea of Jesus as a dying and rising Savior God would have never occurred to early believers if they had not become aware of them in pagan thought first. It would be admitting that Paul and the other new Christians came to believe that Christ was a resurrected God-man who made an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world because of pagan ideas. Proving a strong dependency link between Christianity and Greek thought would be very damaging to those who hold to a high view of Scripture. A weak dependency means that the followers of Jesus had used common religious terminology of the day in order to communicate with the Hebrew and Greek culture surrounding them, and poses no problem for a high view of Scripture. As Nash states, the mere presence of parallels in thought and language does not prove any dependence in the strong sense. Nash and others argue that only a weak dependency can be shown to have existed between Greek religious thought and the gospel of Christ. Although these ideas rarely surface in everyday discussions, Christians entering the academic world would benefit from time spent understanding the issue. In the hands of a hostile professor, partial truths and exaggerated similarities between Christianity and the mystery religions can overwhelm an unaware teen. Being conscious of these arguments against Christian thought prepares us to have confidence in and give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. You've been listening to Probe with your host, Don Clausen. Get your free copy of Don's transcript, Paul and the Mystery Religions, at probe.org slash radio. Again, that's probe.org slash radio. And join us next time as we shine God's light into our dark and deceived culture here on Probe. This week we are considering the influence that the so-called mystery religions had on the development of early Christianity. Yesterday we noted that the History of Religions movement claimed that Christian thought had a direct and strong dependency on the mystery religions. Although some scholars agreed with this view, many did not. A good example is the famous German historian Adolf von Harnack, who wrote, We must reject the comparative mythology which finds a causal connection between everything and everything else. By such methods, one can turn Christ into a sun god in the twinkling of an eye, or one can bring up the legends attending the birth of every conceivable god, or one can catch all sorts of mythological doves to keep company with the baptismal dove.
What were the traits of these religions? The annual vegetation cycle was often at the center, and deep significance was given to the concepts of growth, death, decay, and rebirth. The cult of Eleusis and its central deity, Demeter, goddess of the soil and farming, is one example. Mystery religions also had secret ceremonies and rites of initiation that separated its members from the outside world. Every mystery religion claimed to impart secret knowledge of its deity. This knowledge would be communicated in clandestine ceremonies, often connected to an initiation rite. The focus of this knowledge was not on a set of revealed truths to be shared with the world, but on hidden higher knowledge to be kept within the circle of believers. At the core of each religion was a myth in which the deity returned to life after death or else triumphed over his enemies. As one scholar explains, the myth appealed primarily to the emotions and aimed at producing psychic and mystic effects by which the neophyte might experience the exaltation of a new life. On the other hand, the mystery religions were not concerned as much with correct belief or doctrine, but with the emotional state of the followers. The goal of the believers was a mystical experience that led them to believe that they had achieved union with their God. The mystery religions were not united in doctrine or practice, and they changed dramatically over time. Any impact that they may have had on Christianity must be evaluated by the time frame in which the religions encountered one another. When comparing religious systems, philosopher Ronald Nash warns that caution is advised against using careless language. He states that one frequently encounters scholars who first use Christian terminology to describe pagan beliefs and practices, and then marvel at the awesome parallels they think they've discovered. Today we will look at further arguments against what might be called the strong dependency view that claims that the Apostle Paul's theology was dependent upon pagan mystery cults for its source. A powerful argument against the likelihood that Paul would have turned to pagan thought was his strict Jewish training. In Philippians 3, Paul boasts of being a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had studied under Gamaliel, the most celebrated teacher of the most orthodox of the Jewish parties, the Pharisees. And in Colossians, he warns against the very syncretism he's being accused of. According to Bruce Metzger, with regard to Paul himself, scholars are coming once again to acknowledge that the apostles' prevailing set of mind was rabbinically oriented, and that his newly found Christian faith ran in molds previously formed at the feet of Gamaliel. We find no accusations in the New Testament of Paul incorporating pagan thought into his theology, nor does he feel it necessary to defend himself. The very nature of the mystery cults, with their conflicting pantheon of deities, makes it highly unlikely that they were the source of the strict monotheism found in the New Testament. Although the mystery religions did move towards placing a solar god above all others, this change began after 100 AD, too late to impact biblical theology. It should also be noted that early Christianity was an exclusivistic religion, while the mystery cults were not. One could be initiated into the cult of Isis or Mithras without giving up his or her former beliefs. However, to be baptized into the church, one had to forsake all other gods and saviors. This was a new development in the ancient world. Machen writes, Amid the prevailing syncretism of the Greco-Roman world, the religion of Paul with the religion of Israel stands absolutely alone. Paul's religion was grounded in real events. The mystery religions were not. Instead, they were based upon dramas written to capture men's hearts and passions. As Herman Ritterboss writes, Whereas Paul speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ and places it in the middle of history as an event which took place before many witnesses, the myths of the cults and contrasts cannot be dated. They appear in all sorts of variations and do not give any clear conceptions. In short, they display the timeless vagueness characteristic of real myths. Thus, the myths of the cults 
are nothing but depictions of annual events of nature, in which nothing is to be found of the moral, voluntary, redemptive, substitutionary meaning, which for Paul is the content of Christ's death and resurrection. What if someone told you that the source of Paul's New Testament theology was pagan religious thought, rather than his Jewish training under Gamaliel and his encounter with Christ? That's exactly what the History of Religions movement argued at the end of the 19th century. Many scholars still teach that Paul's portrayal of Jesus as a dying and rising Savior would never have occurred without the presence of the mystery religions. Ronald Nash, author of The Gospel and the Greeks, argues that this view commits a logical fallacy of false cause. Just because two things exist side by side, it does not mean that one must be the cause of the other. As one theologian has written, the history of religion schools had the tendency to convert parallels into influences and influences into sources. Causal connection is much harder to prove than proximity. The mere fact that other religions may have had a god who died and then came back to life in some manner does not mean that this was the source of the Christian idea, even if it can be shown that the apostles knew of these other beliefs. Some scholars tend to exaggerate or invent similarities between Christianity and the mystery religions. British scholar Edwin Bevan writes, Of course, if one writes an imaginary description of the Orphic mysteries, filling in the large gaps in the picture left by our data from the Christian Eucharist, one produces something very impressive. On this plan, you first put in the Christian elements and then are staggered to find them there. An example might be the practice of the Tarabolium in the cult of Sibylle, or Great Mother. This initiation rite, in which the blood of a sacrificed bull is allowed to pour over a neophyte, is claimed by some to be the source of baptism in Christianity. Arguments have been made that the language blood of the lamb and blood of Jesus was borrowed from the language of the Tarabulium and the Cryobulium, in which a ram was slaughtered. In fact, a better argument can be made that the cult borrowed its language from the Christian tradition. The cult of Sibylle did not use the Tarabulium until the 2nd century. The best available evidence for dating the practice places its origin about 100 years after Paul wrote his epistles. German scholar Gunter Wagner points out that there was no notion of death and resurrection in the cultic practice. After noting the change in meaning that the Tarabolium experienced over time, scholar Robert Duthar writes, It is obvious that this alteration in the Tarabolium must have been due to Christianity, when we consider that by A.D. 300 it had become the great competitor of the heathen religions and was known to everyone. Muslim author Yosef Salim Chisti writes that the doctrines of the deity of Christ and the atonement are pagan teachings that come from the Apostle Paul, not from Christ himself. He writes that the Christian doctrine of atonement was greatly colored by the influence of the mystery religions, especially Mithraism, which had its own Son of God and Virgin Mother, and crucifixion and resurrection. Did Paul make up the idea that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, or was it central to the teaching of Jesus and the foundation upon which the early church was built? To begin with, Paul and Jesus both taught that Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism, not pagan thought. In Matthew 5, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and the teaching of the prophets, not to abolish it. In Colossians 2, Paul writes that the religious codes of the Old Testament were merely a foreshadowing of the things that were to come, and that the new reality is found in Christ. Both Christ and Paul taught the necessity of the blood atonement for sin. Jesus stated that, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. At the Last Supper, he added, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Paul affirmed Christ's teaching when he wrote, 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Tying the doctrine back to the Old Testament, Paul wrote, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The parallels between Christianity and Mithraism, claimed by Chiste, are hard to evaluate or confirm since he gives us no references as evidence for the similarities. Other scholars who have looked at the issue find that most of the similarities disappear on close inspection. The original story behind Mithraism is that Mithra was born from a rock, wearing a Phrygian cap and carrying a knife and torch. He battled the sun and a primeval bull, which, when killed, became the basis of life for the human race. Where parallels do occur, it can be argued that Mithraism borrowed ideas from Christianity rather than vice versa. Bruce Metzger writes, It must not be uncritically assumed that the mysteries always influence Christianity, for it is not only possible but probable that in certain cases the influence moved in the opposite direction. The claim that Christianity had a strong dependency on the mystery religion stands on shaky ground and should be investigated thoroughly before one rejects the good news of Jesus and the New Testament writers.